But I'm afraid the end time is near. The cataclysmic apocalypse referred to in the scriptures of every holy book known to mankind. It will be an era fraught with boundless greed and corruption, where global monetary systems disintegrate, leaving brother to kill brother for a grain of overcooked rice. The nations of the civilized world will collapse under the oppressive weight of parasitic political conspiracies which remove all hope and optimism from their once faithful citizens. Around the globe, generations of polluters will be punished for their sins, unshielded by the ozone layer they have successfully depleted, left to bake in the searing naked rays of light. Wholesale assassinations serve to destabilize every remaining government, leaving the starving and wicked to fend for themselves. Bloodthirsty renegade cyborgs created by tax-dodging corporations wreak havoc. Pissed-off androids tired of being slaves to a godless and gutless system where the rich get richer and the poor get fucked over and out. Unleash total worldwide destruction by means of nuclear Holocaust, annihilating the terrified masses, leaving in its torturous wake nothing but vicious, cannibalistic, mutated, radiated, and horribly disfigured hordes of satanic killers bent on revenge, but against whom there are so few left alive. Starvation reigns supreme, forcing unlucky survivors to eat anything and anyone in their path. Massive earthquakes crack the planet's crust like a hollow eggshell, causing unending volcanic eruptions. The creatures of the seven seas, unable to escape to certain death upon land, boil in their liquid prison. Disease encircles the earth, plagues and viruses with no known cause or cure, laying waste to whatever draws breath, and humankind having proven itself to be nothing more than a race of ruthless scavengers, fall victim to merciless attack at the hands of interplanetary alien tribes who seek to conquer our charred remains. This is Extinction Level Event, the final world front, and there is only one year left. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and obviously I've been going through, in the past several episodes, a series that I've called Extinction Level Event, wherein I shoot the breeze about a bunch of comic book crossovers that have just meant something to me over the years. Now... I think it'd be fair to say that Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is supposed to be kind of a celebration of comics. But I gotta tell you folks, I've never been a big fan of the crossover event. Generally, they've always been sort of a turnoff for me, to be honest, but there are a few that really stood out to me. And the entire purpose of the Extinction Level Event miniseries is to just kind of salute those stories. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we talk too much about today's story, I should probably introduce this week's guest. Right? 
mean, there's a novel idea. This week's story demands a certain amount of, shall we say, knowledgeability and scholarly analysis that I, dear listeners, simply cannot muster. Or at least not in the same way that my guest can, which comes to the same, I guess. But anyway, so because this episode needed, above all, to be literate, I knew there was only one man that I could turn to for help in cutting through the glorious ice cream of this week's epic, mega-huge crossover event, the ramifications of which will be felt for years to come and all that stuff. But anyway, my guest has promised, and I'm, I mean like crossed his heart and hoped to die, that he'll kick some awesome science on all of us vis-a-vis the story's various and sundry mythological framework and underpinnings, how it relates to what one might call real-life myth, if that's not a contradiction in terms, and maybe where it diver- diverges just here and there. And so it is that I introduce, for the very first time on this show, Gene Gene, the podcasting machine. Hendrix, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. It is an honor to be here on one of the pinnacle shows of the Two True Freaks Network. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm happy to have you. And honestly, I'm glad to hear it because I got to tell you, man, I've been really looking forward to this. So thank you for joining me because I really wanted this extinction level event miniseries that we're ending as of this episode this is the last one in the bunch i wanted the miniseries to go out on a strong note and so you know maybe it's a a case of save the best for last but all i can say is i'm really happy to have you and i can't wait to get into this yeah it's going to be a fun episode i'll tell you you listeners that right now (laughs) well why don't you also tell them just since we're at it what story are we talking about this week Well, we are talking about the 2010 Marvel miniseries, Fear Itself. Yes, and with that, that little introduction, I just want to just put something out there right now. It's As I was telling Gene just before we started recording, or actually we were recording even at the time, it's just we didn't have the mic turned on, so to speak. Hmm. Before he and I got started, I told him that I was going to be coming at this, I guess, more from a sort of nostalgic point of view. I got to say that this is the first Marvel crossover that I ever really followed from beginning to end and was really invested in. Now, I'm going to spare you the specifics of my little bullshit sob story here, but basically some really negative shit had happened to me just a few months before Fear Itself started up. Basically, I was in a I was in a pretty dark place at the time, and all I really wanted to do was just forget that the entire last five years up to that point had ever even happened. And so my way of dealing with all of this bullshit was just to invest myself in comics because I kind of put comics on the back burner for a lot of years there. And – There was really no good reason for that when you think about it because my parents – and forgive me. I cannot remember if I've ever told this story before, but basically my parents had kind of forced me out of collecting when I was a teenager. Gene, I don't know if you were aware of that, but – I was not, no. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so – yeah, and that's what happened. Uh, It's – there's – 
really nothing I can say that won't make them sound bad or me like a brat or something like that. So it's one of those stories that we just need to acknowledge and then just move along. So when I moved into an apartment with my brother you know, later on in life, I considered collecting again, but it just wasn't the right time. I was a poor college kid, and I had basically no storage space is really what it comes down to. And Gene, I know you know where I'm coming from on this. Comics needs storage space. Oh, yeah. I have no idea how many comics I had at one point, but it was way too much. I got, I've got, i I've gotten to be more of a reader recently than a collector. So did, Marvel Digital Unlimited has uh, done, done me well. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, I've got like 12 boxes and uh, 12 long boxes in my closet, and they're just kind of there. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so as I say, um, poor college kid, no storage space. And so later, ended up moving away from Houston for a while so that – and again, this is a story I'm probably never going to tell on the, on the podcast, but it's just basically some family stuff needed to get done. Enough said. But my living expenses while I was gone dropped – Virtually to nil, and so I I'd kind of considered collecting again, but it wasn't the right time. I mean, I wasn't going to be gone all that long. I knew that, and so why bother collecting when I'd probably just have to transport all of this stuff right back across the entire state of Texas again in just a few months? It, it didn't make sense. So later, had my own townhouse, and I considered collecting again, but it just wasn't the right time. I was still kind of poor, and I think maybe bigger was that I had other responsibilities at the time. You know, like people needed me. Mm-hmm. My time, energy, and and resources had to be focused on that. But then, all at once, I lost basically all of that. I was thirty fucking years old, and I'd been forced out of. Collecting comics for nearly half my damn life, right? I mean, there was always some stupid reason to not do it. And I was just kind of sick of it, you know? I mean, if not if not now, when? You know? Yeah, and it's one of those things where you, you, you just get to the point where you say, fuck it, I need to do this for me. Exactly. <laughs> and that was the baggage that I brought to fear itself. I just wanted to read comics and forget. I just wanted to forget, you know? And so that's pretty much the angle at which I came at fear itself. I'd Now, that's not to say that I hadn't read Marvel crossovers or Marvel comics to the, prior to this moment. I simply had not collected them. I'd, I'd sort of made a reading project. I want to say it started in like comics published in 2003 and then just going right on through to whatever the the new thing was prior to fear itself basically the obvious things the the big crossovers that marvel published during that time because i had read civil war and i seem to be the dissenting opinion on this i actually really enjoyed civil war i mean no story like that is ever going to be it's not going to end as strongly as the concept itself might kind of demand, simply because of the fact that, guys, we need to have a status quo, and it, there's got to be a next issue next month, right? Mm. But within that framework, I thought the ending to Civil War, people call it a cop-out. I thought it was about as good as it could be 
considering the nature of comics. And so that inspired me. I I, I think I, I want to say I started with Secret Invasion and then just worked my way right on through up to what was then the present day. And then right around the time I finished up, Fear Itself started. And I'm like, okay, badass. Here's a, here's a, a crossover that I can kind of get in on from the ground floor and just – I don't know. I didn't feel like I needed to know, like the minutia of continuity. Like one of the things that you mentioned was the fact that the Red Skull had a daughter. I mean, clearly I must. I was out taking a leak or something when that <laughs> happened. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and so I did, but I thought, you know what? We have Wikipedia for stuff like that. I just want to read the story and basically try to pretend like I'm not thinking about the stuff that I'm really thinking about at the time. And there's maybe some Freudian psychological bullshit going on there, that, but that's, guys, a personal issue between me and my shrink. Now, as for you, Gene, yes. uh, like, did you actually read this when it was coming out, or is this something you did specifically for this show? This is something I specifically did for this show. Uh, I am, as as people who listen to my shows know, I'm stuck in, like, the 80s. I've read... Some modern Marvel stuff. I think the before this, the last thing I read was the uh, JMS run on Thor because mm. you know I'm a huge Thor guy, and I thought it was all right. He did one of the one of the things that both Tom Harris and I will never forgive him for. He brought back Donald Blake, uh, which yeah. was completely pointless, and is it's just like, oh, well, you know, Barry Allen must come back because the head honchos like him. But anyway, I didn't really get, have a lot of investment in the Marvel comics of this era. I, I started at Marvel. Un, unlike your backstory, I started with Marvel Comics, and then I transferred over to DC. Mm -hmm. But these characters here... They're familiar, mm -hmm. but they're so far off of where I know them to be in my uh, my reading era that it's like they're not quite right. If if you get what I'm saying, yeah, they they've gone, they've had the, all these storylines. Like for example, one one thing in here in the last issues of Thor that I read. Loki was Loki. You know, he was back to where he was in the Lee Kirby era, schemer, etc., etc. In this, he's a kid. Yeah. I'm reading it like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> where did this come from? But, you know, again, it's one of those things, all comics are like that. There's backstory in there that you, you either know or you don't, and you just go with it from the story. But... Yeah, I didn't read this until you suggested it to me. Hey, why don't we go cover this? And then I dug it up and read it, and it was... Let's just say it was interesting. And we'll, <laughs> and we'll get more into detail on that later. Okay, fair enough. And so, into the summaries we go. Prologue. In Fear Itself, Book of the Skull... The Red Skull performs a ritual during World War II on orders of Adolf Hitler, which causes the Hammer of Scotty to f fall to Earth, where it lands in Antarctica. Traveling to Antarctica, the Red Skull finds the Hammer but is unable to lift it. 
Red Skull has Adolf Hitler's Thule Society seal it away and put it under their guard. Many years later, Red Skull's daughter Sin, with the help of Baron Zemo, retrieves the Book of the Skull that contains the location of the hammer. In the core miniseries, while Tony Stark holds a press conference announcing that his company, Stark Resilient, will help rebuild Asgard in Broxton, Oklahoma, following the Siege storyline, the Red Skull's daughter, Sin, finds the Hammer of Scotty, and after lifting it, becomes Scotty, Herald of the Serpent. She then frees the Serpent from his underwater prison, after which seven celestial objects fall from the sky all over the globe. Learning of the Serpent's escape, Odin withdraws his people from Earth against the protests of his son Thor. The seven celestial objects are revealed to be divine hammers that contain the essences of the serpent's seven generals known as the Worthy. Coming into contact with four of the hammers, the Juggernaut, the Hulk, Titania, and Atuma are respectively transformed into the first of these beings. Kurth, Breaker of Stone, Null, Breaker of Worlds, Skurn, Breaker of Men, and Nerkad, Breaker of Oceans. Along with Scotty, the Worthy go on a rampage all over the Earth for the Serpent. Among their targets are Washington, D.C. and the New York City superhuman prison known as the Raft, from which a number of imprisoned superhumans escape. In the tie-in books, Grey Gargoyle, The Thing, and the Absorbing Man find the other hammers and are transformed into the remaining three Worthy. Mach, Breaker of Faith, Angrier, Breaker of Souls, and Grey Thoth, Breaker of Wills, respectively. During their battle in Washington, D.C., Scotty mortally wounds the current Captain America, Bucky Barnes. In Asgard, Odin prepares his people to raise Earth completely in order to destroy the Serpent. Thor opposes this and returns to Earth. After Steve Rogers reassumes the mantle of Captain America, Thor confronts the Serpent, who reveals himself to be Odin's brother and claims to be the rightful bearer of Asgard's throne before dispatching Thor. Thor then fights the the transformed Thing, Angrier, and Hulk, Null, simultaneously, killing Angrier, who is revived as the Thing by Franklin Richards, and knocking Null halfway around the world, after which Thor collapses from exhaustion. Iron Man requests from Odin the use of his workshop to make weapons to fight the worthy. Scott E. and the Serpent easily repel resistance by Captain America and the Avengers, breaking Captain America's shield and devastating New York City. As Thor convalesces in Asgard, Odin gives him his own battle armor and the Odin sword, Ragnarok, for a last suicide mission against the Serpent. Iron Man and the dwarves of the Svalvarthium present eight newly forged weapons, each designed for a specific Avenger and containing both his repulsor technology and Uru, the same metal which composes Thor's hammer. They throw them into a vat of boiling Uru, into which Iron Man himself leaps, to receive Odin's enchantments. In Broxton, Captain America raises a militia of armed citizens who wish to remain to fight and along with the Avengers, prepares for a final confrontation with the Serpent and with the Worthy. 
Iron Man returns to Earth, his armor coated with Asgardian Uru enchanted by Odin, as well as similarly enhanced weapons with which he arms Spider-Man, Black Widow, Iron Fist, Wolverine, Ms. Marvel, Hawkeye, Red She-Hulk, and Doctor Strange. They confront the Serpent's forces and are joined by the people of Broxton and Captain America, who wields Thor's hammer against Scotty. The worthy are vanquished from their hosts when Odin summons their hammers away from them, and Thor kills the Serpent at the cost of his own life. As Thor and Bucky are mourned by their allies, Odin returns to Asgard with the corpse of his brother, Cole, sealing off Asgard from Hermod, and a number of other Asgardians who are left on Earth. The Stark Asgardian weapons are returned to Asgard to be melted, with the exception of the Red She-Hulk who retains hers, and Iron Man presents Rogers with his reforged shield, now stronger for its Uru-infused enhancements, despite the scar that it bears. The End So, what did I think? Well completely irrelevant at the moment because uh, Gene what I want to do is actually give you sort of first dibs on this so okay. I guess the story at, like at large you know basically beginning to end all of the twists and turns and, and whatnot that it took what were your I, I guess your impressions of it especially being a, sort of a student of myth as you are like what stood out to you uh okay well as a comic story I liked it it was it's always interesting to see superheroes go against something that is so powerful that when you're reading it, it's just, oh, are they going to survive? Obviously, they're going to because they need to keep the the lines going, etc. But the way they, they handle it is always of interest to me. How are they going to tackle this? The way they manage to get Cap... Um, how they got Steve Rogers back in the Captain America outfit. Uh, what happened to Thor at the end of it where, what was the guy's name? Um, uh, Tanaris. Okay. How he showed up in Thor's place with a different version of the hammer. That that was interesting. That's one of those things where I, I would have picked it up afterwards to say, oh, well, how are they going to resolve this? Because they're not getting rid of Thor. Uh, it's They tried that. Didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, it's just some of the, the things like, okay, now you have a super-powered juggernaut. Holy crap. Yeah. How do you deal with all, all these different threats? As a comic book story, I liked it. It was enjoyable to read. Went a little too fast, but that's, you know, comics of this era. Mm-hmm. And and my, my innate prejudice for that stuff. The second way I want to come at this is from a Norse cosmology perspective. And I do know a little bit about this because as His Excellency has recently converted to Roman Catholicism, and I would like to personally congratulate you on that, sir. I know how hard it can be. Thank you. I am a heathen in my religion, and that took a while for me to get into, so... For those listeners that don't understand what that means, I worship the Norse gods. That is my religion. And that took a a lot of time and effort to get into that, to actually be accepted into that religion. So 
Looking. Holy shit, I am so sorry to interrupt, but now I just want to talk about that. <laughs> like, you know, yes. just like the ins and outs, it's completely out, uh, out of scope for what we're here to do, but uh, wow, that's... Uh, you can't uh, pass it up, can you? No, no. <laughs> um, and, 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 and please don't take this as me bashing or looking down my nose. I don't mean it like that. I mean, that's just one of those... Okay, fuck it, here we are. Uh, basically, it's just, it's one of those subjects that... I think everyone always kinds of everyone has a sort of awareness of, but it, you know, it, I didn't. I kind of figured that's probably where you were coming from, but it, it felt I don't know rude or presumptuous or just in in some way inappropriate to ask. But yeah, I I I'd kind of wondered about that. But anyway, to get back on topic though, uh, I'm sorry, I'm giving you back the soapbox here. Have at it. <laughs> okay, so if I look at this story from a Norse cosmology perspective. They have no fucking clue what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, let me write down for you. The, the main bad guy in this is the serpent. Very odd name, but whatever. And he is supposedly someone that Odin usurped the control of the cosmos from because I guess he was the older brother hmm. and he was prophesied to kill Thor. All right, let's take it one step at a time. First of all, Odin has two brothers. They are named Vili, V-I-L-I, and Ve, V-E. They are younger than Odin. They are the three sons of Bor, who is the son of Buri, who was the first god. No other brothers. That's it. Odin didn't usurp nothing. He inherited his position as Allfather. Now, the, the term Allfather refers to the fact that, yeah, he kind of is the dad of a lot of the Norse gods, but he is also the head of the clan. So he is the father figure. Part two of this is the prophecy with Thor and the serpent. Well, the serpent in question is the Midgard serpent, one of the sons of Loki. And this is this is the huge frickin snake that encircles the world. He is and I will actually pull out the the actual text for you. Uh, I am reading for those that are interested from Kevin Crossley Holland's The Norse Myths. And in the myth of Ragnarok, we have and I quote Thor, son of Earth and gaping Jormungand, who is that's the Norse name for the Midgard serpent, have met before, too. They are well matched. At Vigrid, the god will kill the serpent, but he will only be able to stagger back nine steps before he falls dead himself, poisoned by the venom of the serpent spewed over him. That's the prophecy that they're referring to. It is not a person. It is not a god that changes into a serpent. It's actually a fucking serpent. <laughs> Okay, so he the best the best analogy I can make this story to Norse cosmology is as if you were talking about uh, Jesus getting help from Moses when he went up against Goliath. Yeah, all different kinds of inappropriate there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's basically, oh, this is a cool name. I'll just steal that. Or this is something, oh, I'll, I'll just appropriate that. Now, another one would be uh, Scaldi, who 
the Red Skull's daughter, Sin, I think mm-hmm. her name is. Yeah. She gets a hammer and trans becomes Sin. Like Don Blake became Thor. She she becomes Scaldy. And supposedly the serpent is her father. Well, maybe it's a metaphorical thing, whatever. Scaldy was actually she was a giantess. She was but she married Niord, who is one of the two sea gods in Norse mythology. And when she married him, she became part of the Aesir, who are the, the gods, the, the tribe of the gods, really. And she became the goddess of winter. So having her be evil in this, going up against Odin, it doesn't make sense from that cosmology thing. So, yeah, they, they have no clue. They did no research at all. Um, and again, this uh, may be a bit out of scope for what we're here to talk about, but, um, I guess just on, on a personal level, I mean, and obviously there's no, there's no wrong answer to this, but how does this, I'm not, I, I'm not trying to put this in terms of like psychobabble bullshit or anything like that. <laughs> and I'm certainly not, again, not trying to talk down to you or anything. So I hope you don't, I hope you don't get that, that vibe, but how does that make you feel, uh, whenever you read something that it, it basically takes what is um, basically a a religious text uh, to you, and it, it I'm trying to think of a way to honor both of you when I say this, but it kind of plays maybe a little fast and loose with the details, or for that matter, even the big picture itself. Like, what what is your reaction to that? Well, I don't get offended if if that's if that's what you're asking. It, I get more annoyed than anything, mainly because you know. I can I can get it years ago. Okay, maybe you didn't get quite right or anything. But when you're in an age mm-hmm. that you can type in the name of something mm-hmm. and get 20 hits on Google or Wikipedia or whatever and be able to do the research in less than a day, it just, it it insults my intelligence that you don't even bother to do it. Especially, and this brings me to my third point, or the third way I'm looking at this, especially when you had someone of the caliber of Walt Simonson back in the 80s able to do it and integrate this stuff much more seamlessly than this. You know, we're talking some 30 years after the fact is... Directly contradicting stuff Simonson had in his Marvel run. And that's that's what gets me. It's like, okay, you can't even do a quick Google search. You can't talk to an editor and say, hey, I want to use this. What do you think? Is there anything in the past that I, I may run up against? And that brings me to Thor, Volume 1, issue number. Let me find it here. I believe it is 380. Why, yes, it is. And that is, believe it or not, the mighty Thor going up against the Midgard Serpent. <laughs> so just all well, around, this whole thing's pretty on the nose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if you look at Simonson's run, he, he no, he didn't get everything right. But I don't expect him to get everything right. It's a comic book, for crying out loud. 
Right. It it it's not like he's doing a scholarly paper, but he had enough in there that showed he took the time to do the research. No, it, in in his version, Odin's actually the youngest of the three brothers, and the other two sacrifice themselves to seal Surtur away, and that's when all their power transfers to him, and that's where the Odin force comes from. It, which which I'm perfectly fine with. That's a comic book explanation why Odin's all powerful, why the other two aren't around. No problem, because he at least did the research. And it's obvious that it wasn't done on this this series, which is a little, like I said, it, it just, it doesn't offend me, it just annoys me. Like, I can, I can grab a book out of a library of Norse myths and with no research whatsoever, just page through, it's like, oh, they got that wrong, they got that wrong, they got that wrong. Yeah, it, it's just so blatantly obvious. Right, and see, the reason I asked is because I knew it was, uh, I, I, I'd heard a little something-something about the continuity problems, and I mean uh, in terms of the story, internal continuity uh, problems that Fear Itself raises mm -hmm. with respect to what's gone before in the Walt Simonson run. And the angle I was going to take on that was going to be that I'm kind of at a point, and I guess in my, my fandom, to whatever degree I actually have it, of of Marvel, where to me there are two, or depending on how you view it, three distinct eras of, or at least three Marvel universes, multiverses, whatever, however you want to look at it, right? To me, there's pre-Joe Q, there is post-Joe Q, and then there is Ultimates. And... Okay. Strictly speaking, you know, we should expect these stories to more or less line up with what's gone before because certain characters have certain things become sort of mythos to the character. Now, to kind of give you an idea of what I mean, there's a I'm I'm going to make an analogy here. There's an epi uh, ep an episode, sorry. There's an issue of uh, Superman. Mm -hmm. uh, Superman number 51. It's basically the debut and first appearance of a character by the name of Mr. Z. And he's ah, this... Ah, yes. Uh, yeah. I have, I have that, actually. Yeah, it's and you know what? It's a good, fun issue. It's it, it, To me, it, it, it sort of typifies everything that, that was just cool about that era of Superman. But when push comes to shove, I don't think anybody, anybody considers that to be an absolutely essential Superman story. Like years from now, when people look back at, you know, what were the great Superman stories of, you know, the 80s and the 90s and whatnot, like what really stands up to the test of time? As good as that story may be, is it really worthy of canonization? Right. And my view of that is, and, and all due respect to, you know, the people who worked on that, uh, on that issue of Superman, most especially Jerry Ordway? No. Now, there is another story that came out at about that same time, Dark Knight over Metropolis. Mm. And let's if you figure that your average comic book is 22 pages long, that story is 66 pages, of which only two anybody ever seems to remember or talk about. Huh. And it's this very pivotal moment in the last probably the last two pages of the last issue 
Superman pimps into the Batcave, and he's like, look, you and I are not hostile to each other anymore. We are not enemies anymore, all right? And the unspoken message here is that they're entering a new phase of their relationship where they're kind of shaking off this sort of just, I would say, almost dislike of each other. And there's a there's an acceptance of one another that's starting to build. And it's personified by this by this moment that has become absolute canon in Superman and Batman's relationship. Even now in the new 52, I still th- I could be wrong. But I still think that this is in continuity even now. But it certainly was prior to the New 52, you know, after uh, Infinite Crisis and all those other things that happened. This moment was still in continuity. It's the moment where Superman presents Batman with the kryptonite ring that belonged to Lex Luthor. And it's basically supposed to be, number one, a symbol of trust. But number two, it's like I said, the unspoken message here is that I'm not your enemy. And you're not my enemy. I regard you, at the very least, as an ally and someone that I can, that I can choose to de- to depend on, and entrust my life to, including ending it, if push ever truly comes to shove. That's what we are to each other now, you know. And I don't want to, I don't want to get too mystical with it. You know, we're a tribe. I don't mean it like <laughs> like that so much. But I mean, this is a very pivotal moment, and. The subsequent writers and artists and editors and and who's he what's us at DC understood the importance of that moment. Maybe even in ways at the time that I don't know that the original creative team that made that moment, I don't know if they truly understood it. But certainly their successors did, and they made a lot of hay out of it. Now, this is one hell of a long way of saying that Walt Simonson's run on Thor is not disposable. I'm not a huge Thor guy by any stretch of the imagination. But it pretty much, if you take away Walt Simonson's contribution to Thor, his publishing history is about as impressive as, I would say, Captain America before a certain point, right? Where how many really amazing runs are there on Captain America prior to Mark Wade? Well, if you take Walt Simonson's work away from, from Thor, I kind of feel like they're on very equal footing there. And so it, to me, just as a fan... You know, does everything need to be absolutely locked down in a vault continuity and canonized? Well, maybe not, but certain things are absolutely unquestionably part of these characters' history. And so my point in all of this is to say it's a pretty big fuck-up for them to make that they that there are so many conflicts and things going on with Walt Simonson's run when, if you ask a whole lot of hardcore comics fans – He's really the only thing that matters to Thor's big history. I don't know, maybe before 1998. You've pretty much got Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. And then years later, here comes Walt Simonson. That's it. And again, that may be an oversimplification of Thor's history. And if it is, Gene, I apologize to you. <laughs> but to me, do you, can you see the point here that this is – it may seem like it's a, it's a small detail – but when you think about it, it's not like Thor has much else to draw from. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Simonson run on Thor is one of the, in in my opinion, and yes, I am biased, is one of the great runs on a comic. You there, It's right up there with Burns, Burn on um, 
Fantastic Four. On Fantastic Four, really, yeah. And Jack Kirby and Stan Lee on on the Fantastic Four and the Avengers. And they, it's it's one of those quintessential things where if you if someone says, I want to read Thor comics, you hand them Simonson. Yeah. Nobody else. You hand them Simonson because that is the high water mark of the series. There are plenty of other stories in there that I love. But it doesn't get any better. It, it literally does not get any better. And I say I'm biased because this is. That is the run that got me interested in Norse mythology oh. and, and other mythology in general. I mean, it, it, it went from there to Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. where I real I read the uh, the one book is called Legends and Lore from the second edition Dungeons and Dragons. And they had that's they had a Norse mytho- Norse pantheon and the stats of the gods and everything. And they described Thor as having red hair. I'm like, no, Thor's a blonde. What the, what the hell is this? So it got me to look into the actual myths and find out, oh, no, Thor does have red hair. So what's going on here? And seeing the connections and then going into Greek mythology. And I, I actually took college courses in this just because I'm so interested in it. And that eventually led me down the road to where I am today. But it all started with Simonson. And it's... Because he got so much right, no, he didn't get it 100% letter perfect because it's a comic book. It's it's not a scholarly work. It's a comic book. Mm-hmm. But he even threw in stuff. Like when Don Blake was wiped from existence, one of the greatest things he, he ever did in comics was he wiped Don Blake from existence. But Blake had a practice in Chicago. He had a, a receptionist, a nurse. I think there was uh, an office manager. And Fandral the Dashing went there, you know, dressed in street clothes, and paid them off. As a, well, the practice is closed. Don Blake, you know, he's he's gone to take another job. Here, he he gave you this as you know to pay all the final bills and his severance, and it was a box of gold basically. Right. But he also had amulets in there, hammer amulets. Which it just like the one I wear every day, like a Christian would wear a crucifix, I wear a hammer amulet. Okay. And he didn't have to put it in there. It it wasn't even mentioned. It was just a picture. And just the fact that he had it in there showed he did his research. And that's you don't get any better than that, and you don't come into this and contradict it. <laughs> right. You know? But I mean it, it the the major problem I have with with this series, and it it's not from a story aspect. The story itself is good, mm-hmm. but it's just the the blatant we can do whatever we want because it's it's our book attitude that they seem to have. With okay, you don't want to look into the Norse mythology. Fine, don't, no problem. Look into your own publishing history, at least. And yeah, we're we're going over the same point over and over again. So I'm I'm sorry about that. It's just, it just it gets under my skin a little bit. Well, no, and you know that's the thing. I mean, you know, I want you to I want you to speak your mind. So absolutely, and and the other thing is, you know, as I was reading all of this, um, I, I was absorbing this literally as this is just a story, and that's not to. 
that's not to downplay anything or for that matter um, give things any more credibility than honestly that they really deserve only to say that what I wanted from this was just sort of a sort of a fun read and so you know obviously whenever you finish up a story like this the question the logical question to ask yourself is did I get what I came for and in the end this the answer to that it's, it's going to sound strange but the answer to that ultimately was no I didn't and the reason is it felt like I'm trying to find a maybe politic way to put this. It felt like this was a little bit too far outside of my comfort zone when it comes to what uh, I look for and enjoy the most in comics. I mean, I enjoyed the story and I had fun with it on the one hand. But on the other hand, you know, this whole thing about, you know, mystical objects and enchanted kingdoms that come crashing down on planet Earth mm. and everything. I mean, those are just things that. I guess as far as stories are concerned, I've just never really had a whole lot of interest in as a reader. You know, I mean, if it's a if it's a story where, I don't know, Galactus comes to knocking or something, then, you know, for some reason, like that aspect of Marvel Cosmic, I guess the more spacefaring type stuff is okay with me. But I guess the more Asgardian ang uh, angle that has all of the... I, I, I'm trying to talk around using the word magic because that's not really what it is, but I hope I'm making sense. Does that, does that add up? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It, it's, if it's more of a spacefaring Galactus kind of thing, it's rules that you understand. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of times what they'll do with the, the Asgardian stuff is make it a little too Dr. Strange, a little too, yeah, we just hand wave and get our solution. Which is it, it's unsatisfying, really, when when you get down to it. That's why I'm not a big a big guy for the magic stuff, mm -hmm. even though I, I like it. I love King Arthur mm -hmm. and all the Arthurian stuff. But in that, when you have Merlin, Merlin has to pay a price to do these big magic spells. Uh, for example, in the movie Excalibur. Mm hmm which is one of my all-time favorite movies, is Merlin transforms King Uther to look like the Duke of Cornwall, so he could go and essentially rape Cornwall's wife. To do that huge amount of magic, he had to sleep for nine months because it took so much out of him that he was basically in a coma for nine months. Whereas, whereas he had, like, Doctor Strange... Or some of the Asgardian stuff, and it's just like bibbidi bobby boo it's done. And they don't pay a price for it. Right. And the other angle that I was coming at it with, now, again, completely rookie Marvel guy here, so just bear that in mind. But there's a moment, and it's in uh, the uh, seventh issue, mm. where it's uh, – it's, excuse me. It's Iron Fist and, as you say, Doctor Strange – they're they're sort of teaming up with each other and they're going to have their little moment where they're fighting, you know, these hordes and everything and Iron Fist makes this this comment. He says, "I'm sorry. I don't speak giant skank." And that moment just kind of fell flat to me in that I never thought of Iron Fist as being um uh, snarky, I guess. You know, I always thought yeah. he was a little bit more soft-spoken. He's direct, 
and he doesn't necessarily, you know, he may have a little bit of verbal repartee. It doesn't really pop off like that, though, you know? Yeah, it's it's definitely, it seems too Spider-Man to me to, to be Iron Fist. But then again, the Iron Fist I know is from the Power Man and Iron Fist series, so it's a little out of date. Well, and I get that, but, you know, again, this is... <sighs> I don't know. There's yeah. just there's a lot to be said for consistency. And as you say, I mean, is this worth, you know, pitching the book in the fireplace and lighting it up? Well, no. But, I mean, dude, at the same time, you know, there's a lot to be said for, I guess, keeping things even, you know. And mm-hmm. this is just one of those moments where, yeah, it's it's a funny line in the context of the story because now this is the moment in the battle where the tide turns. And we're not quite to the climax of it all just yet. And so, but you, it's okay now to show the heroes, instead of getting their asses kicked, now they can actually start winning. And it just felt a little too something. I don't know. I just, I, even at the time that I was reading this for the first time, it's just, it's one of those manners that I could see Doctor Strange correcting him on it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see him needing to be corrected in the first place. I just didn't buy it, you know? Yeah, it's like they had a different character in mind when they wrote the line. And it just happened to be Iron Fist in there for whatever reason. Yeah, there was a lot in this that it just seemed like people were acting out of character. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that's just my perception of it or if the story demanded that they have to do this in order for it to move forward. But, for, for example, in, what is it, issue four? where you have the the residents of uh, Boxton, where Asgard was, which is a whole other issue I have with it. Mm -hmm. But Thor comes down, and they basically tell him to go pound sand. Okay, so you're going to take on this supernatural menace with shotguns, and a god has come to offer his assistance, and you tell him you don't want it? Yeah. That seems like terminally stupid yeah um basically that's it's one of those it's one of those moments that it it works well for the drama of the story in terms of oh shit now what's gonna happen well what's gonna happen is they're all gonna die yeah really (laughs) you know i wish there was a (laughs) a nicer way to say it but the other thing is i i'm Keep in mind, I mean, I, it's not like I'm I'm reading this as we go along right now, but I can't really think of anything that Thor's done apart from just chilling out on Asgard. I'm at a loss to think of anything that Thor's done to kind of merit the cold shoulder that he got. I mean, look, I can appreciate the fact that, you know, there are some issues between these characters that they've got to work out. But, dude, the time to do it is not when you're facing the mother of all existential threats. Look, this is the biggest thing that's going to happen in the Marvel Universe all week. And if there's not something done about this, and I mean right now, there ain't going to be a Marvel Universe next week for you guys to continue pouting like this. Of all people, I would expect Cap to be able to prioritize. You know, you got to have mm-hmm. some give and take. Yeah, it it doesn't doesn't really make a lot of sense you know if you get to the point where okay basically half of new york is gone half of manhattan has been destroyed Mm -hmm. you take 
protect your allies where you can. I don't care if it's Magneto and the Red Skull standing next to you saying, yeah, we'll help you fight. You say, fine, get a gun. You take whatever help you can against a threat of this size and work out the details after the fact. You know, win first, then get pissed. Yeah. Now, there were there, there were actually a few twists and turns. I, for one thing, I was sitting here and I was looking at this strictly from a commercial standpoint, right? But it never crossed my mind that fear itself was going to end with Bucky still being a, a Captain America. And as a matter of fact, I didn't love Bucky's chances of even surviving the story. Right. And so I figured, well, there's a movie, and at the time there was, but there's a movie that's coming out pretty soon. There's no way that Marvel, the masters of synergy that they are, there's no way that they're going to allow anybody other than Steve Rogers to be Captain America by the time that movie starts up. So one way or the other, Bucky's days, at least as Captain America, are numbered. So to me, the question was not so much will it happen, how is it going to happen? And the way I saw it playing out, like I say, issue number seven, shit gets real. Or maybe if they want to do it in issue number six, because I was kind of thinking, you know what, Thor may have his, there may be a bullet with Thor's name on it too, mm. and they're going to want to save that for issue seven. So maybe issue six is when um, Bucky's going to swim with the fishes or sleep with the fishes, fucking whatever the expression is. <laughs> and no, uh, yeah, he, uh, he he dies. Oh, he gets the shit killed out of him. But that's in like the third issue. And so by the time the fourth issue starts, it's there's a, I think there's a psychological blind spot that a lot of Marvel fans have that – they somehow become more invested in a story, I've noticed, if there's not somebody clearly operating under the name Captain America. To them, that, on some subconscious level, it's like it enhances the tension for them a little bit. And it's like nobody ever really mentions this. But I think there's something to it. Because if you look at other sort of capless crossovers, mm. or, or at least major storylines... I noticed the ones that people like, uh, or at least the ones that people respond to, I guess maybe in the most visceral terms, tend to be the ones where Captain America is either just not around, or as it is in this story, we're sort of between Captain Americas at the moment, you know? Yeah, it's it's almost like he is the only one that can ever lead. You know, if, if there is no Captain America usually specifically Steve Rogers, then the heroes are rudderless. They can't figure out what to do on their own, which doesn't make a lot of sense because there's so many teams out there and each team has a leader. You would think even if there was no Captain America, okay, well, so Cyclops steps up. He has enough battle experience leading a team of heroes. So Or Nick Fury. Nick Fury, yeah. And I have to say, in this, the way... Nick Fury dealt with getting Steve Rogers back into the Captain America uniform. That seemed very Nick Fury to me. Mm -hmm. Just the way that he, he used the Black Widow to manipulate Rogers into saying, okay, yes, Bucky is actually dead. I have to do this for him when he really wanted nothing to do with Captain America anymore. That's a Nick Fury way to go. You know, that's the master spy. I must, you know, plan 
have plans within plans within plans kind of thing. Right. Uh, one one other thing that I didn't much care for, and this goes from, again, from the Norse stuff, but also from the comics, is <sighs> Tony Stark makes a quote-unquote sacrifice to get Odin to help him. That was going to be something I wanted to ask you about, actually. Yeah. Uh, first of all, one of the things he says is, I don't even believe in you when talking to Odin. He's met him. How can you not believe into somebody that you've actually shaken his hand? That, that never, that didn't sit well with me, you know? Right. But the sacrifice, he sacrifices his sobriety. Not going to fly. Sorry. The way the the Norse gods view sacrifices is it it's described as a gift cycle. The way the Norse mindset is, you cannot receive a gift with no strings. If you if I give you a gift, then you need to reciprocate in some way to me. But the gift has has to be usable. For example, the the typical gift that would uh, sacrifice for the gods would be a pig. You would sacrifice a pig. Most heathens today can't really do that just because we're not farmers. So we bake a cake in the shape of a pig and sacrifice that. It's a votive sacrifice. It's the, the cake is standing in for the pig. But okay. it's a it's supposed to be something that the gods can use. Like when when was this? Uh, several years ago. I don't remember the exact the exact year. I was living near the shore of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was not only was it the winter solstice, it was also a full lunar eclipse. Oh, and that that's one of those things. OK, I got to do something special here in order to show my devotion to the gods. Hey, look at what I'm doing for you. Well, one of the things I always have on me is a multi-tool. One of those things, it's pliers, it's a knife, it's screwdrivers, etc. A Leatherman would be another is a brand name for it. OK. Well, I went to the beach at the time of the solar eclipse on the winter solstice. I threw that into the ocean. I made a vow. I will not get another one for one year. Which was a sacrifice. I sacrificed my tool, which was always on my belt, to specifically to Azir, who is the god of one of the gods of the sea. And I was living at the ocean. I wanted to get him on my 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 side, you know. Okay. Sobriety isn't like that. Sobriety is not something the gods can use. So him saying, "Oh, look, I'm you know I'm going to drink this bottle of whatever the hell it is, peach wine or whatever." <laughs> Odin would just look at that and like, "Yeah, okay, whatever." <laughs> In fact, going back to the lore, uh there's actually some specific lines in there about, and it's called the Havamal, which is basically the gods telling you how you should act. 
And there's a couple passages in that basically saying, don't be a drunk. (laughs) Make sure that you know your limit and stick to that limit because no one likes a drunk. (laughs) So this actually would have the opposite effect. Him becoming a drunk would piss him off more than accepting a sacrifice for it. Well, the shit that's a that's all stuff that i i did not know i always assumed that basically that this was uh that this was a guy that was just sort of fumbling around trying to figure this all, all this stuff out for himself but you're right i guess i you know if you think about it whether whether it's through ignorance or not no they wouldn't i don't think your ignorance in that would actually pardon you from anything so, well, then I, I guess to kind of switch it the other way, and, and I realize what the, like, from a mechanical standpoint, what the purpose of that was. It's like Tony Stark is not sober anymore. He's not exactly falling off the wagon, but this is how desperate things are. This is the vow he made a long time ago that he now feels compelled to break because of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand, like, the, the storytelling purpose that's being served here, but I guess as far as, like, a, just a more functional uh, thing, what in your opinion, should Stark have done that would have uh, perhaps changed Odin's mind? Well, basically come at it as if, because he goes into it yelling and screaming, calling Odin a bully, etc. He could have come in and said, fine, I want your help. I'm going to give you something that means a lot to me, and sacrifice his Iron Man armor. Hmm. That would have come in that Odin would have seen that as like, okay, that's important to you. That's a useful tool. Fine. Okay. Yeah, we'll help you. No problem. All right. Well, the, um, hmm. Well, see, I, I originally, I was actually going to make that suggestion, but I thought, well, why would they care about his Iron Man armor? But it's not, I guess so much about what they can use. It's about what yeah. you can use. Right. It's it's that's the sacrifice. He is giving that thing that's important to him and is useful to the gods. And then the gods can decide to use it or not. It's up to them. It's now theirs. They could even give it back to him at a later date and in exchange for something that he could do for them. Hmm. The sobriety doesn't work that way. Uh, it's it's usually a tangible thing is you something that they can take with them and do something with if they wish hmm. Hmm. okay well that is actually very educational that i did not know and that my friend is the whole reason i wanted you on this show in the first place <laughs> so that's that's actually that's that's actually really good now there was a little bit of a um dramatic I don't know if I could, if I should say a a bit of a dramatic reversal, but I guess what I was, and what I'm talking around here is goings on with, with Thor, Mm. right? And it was pretty clearly prophecy, prophesied uh, earlier in the story that, no, he's, he's a goner. And uh, this is going to be pretty much the end of the line for him. Now it's comics and people come back, et cetera. But at least in the context of this story, Thor has breathed his last. And the reason that that sort of caught me off guard was because 
I thought it would have been sort of storytelling 101 to establish this binding, unbreakable prophecy early on in the story, precisely so that when you overturn it later on, it's seen as I don't. It's a dramatic twist. Now you have to be careful how you do it because you still have to, in some way or another, satisfy the terms of the prophecy, in a generic sense, while still breaking away at least from the intended, I don't know, outcome. Right? But no, this was actually a very literal thing, and it's kind of funny that when you sometimes think that you've outsmarted the writer. And he takes the predictable zag that he said up front he was going to take. And you still are caught off guard by it. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving Matt Fraction a little too much credit, at least on this one point. But I actually, I was kind of impressed by that. So, because I at least didn't, in spite of the fact that it was, it, it was promised up front that this was going to happen. I still was caught off guard by it. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting way to go. Because it's not something you expect. It's something that this is, at its core, this is a Thor story. It deals with Asgard, deals with Norse cosmology, etc. And to kill Thor, and then to bring back somebody else in his place, mm-hmm. was, it was ballsy if nothing else. And it did catch me off guard. I, when I was reading, it's like, wait, he's, he's actually dead. Really? He, he's actually dead. They're going to burn him and everything. Yeah. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a good twist. I, I enjoyed that twist. And like I said, I, I haven't, but at some point I am going, I'm going to at least look into this and see, okay, how does he come back? Because this Tanaris, everyone seemed to remember him being in Thor's place. So it's like there weren't missing anything. Which was interesting. I agree. And there was another... I it, It's kind of funny that Odin has an... I don't know if I would go so far as to call it an understated character arc, but he does sort of have an interesting character arc in this in that he started off as being, I don't, I guess, isolationist or or separatist or or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Basically getting Asgard as separated from Earth as possible. And that was sort of the reference point that that he brought coming into this story. And then... By the end, because of the fact that shit had gotten so fucking far out of control, and let's be honest, some proportion of this is his fault, Yeah, he sort of exiled all of the Asgardians from Asgard, basically locked the door, pulled in the welcome mat, and he just kind of turned Asgard into his own personal fortress of solitude, where presumably he could spend all of eternity mourning over his son and I couldn't help but think that did some part of him there had to be a twinge of guilt or or I don't know I mean it's just it's one of those things that it's kind of packed of packed with character that in a strange sense he's at he's simultaneously repenting of what he did in terms of I guess this whole isolationist attitude while at the same time he's also reaffirming it 
and maybe even taking it to the next level in as much as he's now isolating himself even from his own kind. And so, like I said, I mean, I came into this story knowing absolutely nothing, really, about Odin. And I mean the comic book character, Odin. Mm -hmm. And what I came away with was that, yeah, the guy's a dictatorial prick. There's just, there's no way around that. But that's not all he is. He's not just the sky god who's sitting around barking orders all day. The guy does have a heart. And it just got broken. Yeah, it's one of these things where it in this story, Odin was essentially trying to protect his people. Mm-hmm. He could give two shits about the mortals mm-hmm. in, in this. He just wanted to protect his people. But then Thor had to go and be all Thor and fight where he knew he was doomed. And Odin in in this, I think, felt at the end that if he didn't do that, if he didn't pull everyone back and they went in full on and fought that Thor would still be alive. And that was the guilt that he felt over it, that he said, okay, we're going to do it Thor's way. All you get the hell out. You're going to be on earth. That's it. I'm staying here. And it's essentially, helping it going the way Thor wanted it to be where, which is the Asgardians on earth Mm -hmm. and his own penance for allowing him his, his own self-serving mindset to cost him his son. Yeah. It was just, yeah. And it was, it it was a, uh, it was a powerful moment and I guess sort of broadly, and I'm not trying to, you know, skip around and, jump through a bunch of different things here, but I'm just, you know, as I'm flipping through it right now, one of the things that Marvel, I think, does really well, I know this annoys the hell out of some people, but I think one of the things they do really well is they give you the man on the street, literally, the man on the street's angle on goings-on in the Marvel Universe. And to me, this is the thing, one of the things that really separates the Marvel Universe from the DC universe in that the DC universe, I want to say it was Grant Morrison who first made this uh, sort of comparison between the Greek pantheon versus the Justice League of America, and there is a lot of overlap there Mm -hmm. as as far as archetypes are concerned. There's There's a lot of overlap. But it's a place where basically... You've, you've really got a very simplistic type of thing where you can assume the heroes are in the right, the villains are in the wrong. And I'm speaking classically, less so now, but classically, DC was a place of sort of black and white type of moral certitude where, yes, the citizens at times lived in fear, but not of their heroes. And there's a there's a certitude there that just does not exist in the Marvel Universe that, yeah, they're afraid of supervillains, but let's be real, part of them is all, they're always looking over their shoulders at their heroes as well. And this is one of, it's Civil War, certainly, but this story too, it was really good at giving you, and I mean the main series, forget, you know, for the moment, just forget the uh, tie-ins and whatnot, the main series was really good at giving you what the people of Broxton were thinking Mm-hmm. And, you know, the just the the impact that the presence of Asgard 
was having on their local economy, real estate prices, um, the job market, so on and so on, right? Where it, on the surface, you might think, hey, it's really cool to have this, this uh, sort of godly haven hovering right above our town. Well, no, actually, it's not, because every any idiot worth talking to in the Marvel Universe is going to tell you, sooner or later, that's going to become a target of somebody. And so we simply can't insure your house, Mr. Smith. You live in too dangerous an area. Yeah, that is, that is one thing that, like you said, Marvel has always done very well. And this series especially, where you see the impact on the common person. And it's it's one of those things that most most people wouldn't consider. They're just they're in this to read about, you know, fights between superheroes and gods. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily considering the property damage, who it affects or any of that or like you said just the economic effect of having this. They're their entire town's economy was turned upside down when Asgard showed up because mm-hmm. now they're dealing with a tourist attraction that none of them wanted. It just was there one day. Right. And it's, it's something that takes a lot of getting used to. And a good number of them did not get used to it. They just said, I'm not doing, I'm not dealing with this. I'm going somewhere else. Yeah. And, the uh, there's a there's this little bit at the beginning or near the beginning where this family is actually moving away and it, it's kind of funny that at the time that this comic was coming out as you say it was 2010 and we were really i would say getting pretty balls deep into the recession that was going on and still is and this was a, a scene a family loading up their car and moving off to parts unknown Literally to rebuild everything from the ground up because they it's gone, and so it's kind of funny that there is a there is a sort of real world relatability to this. It's just from a different. It's just taken to the nines here in terms of sci-fi, if that's even the right thing to call Asgard. But it's taken to the nines here. But the the kernel of it, I guess, the relatable human story is something that a lot of us are maybe painfully familiar with. You know, so. Uh, it's just it's one of those moments where I really felt like the entire concept of fear itself was a uh, maybe a little a little too political at times. This was timely, but it didn't strike me as being like way over the top political, like elements of civil war, for example. So I just thought it was good writing. So oh yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely good writing because it was just this is the circumstance. This is how we're dealing with it. it they didn't blame anybody. They didn't blame like whoever the current president was or whatever. Yeah, it was just this is this is what we're dealing with. This is how we're gonna get back on our feet. That was the whole the whole thing about it. Yeah. So yeah, that was uh, it, that those bits and stories like it were really good and i say all of this because up to now i've been kind of trying to stay on the positive side here <laughs> there is a, a, a less savory aspect of this story that thankfully it's not a major part of it so we don't need to dwell on it too much if you don't want to i didn't really bother to read a whole lot of the uh 
uh, tie-in miniseries. And the reason for that was, number one, I don't think there were – I know there were some, but I don't think there were just tons of them. That was number one. Number two, I wanted to actually buy them, all right? I didn't want to just skim them off the internet the way – and I'm not casting moral judgments on anybody who does that. I'm just saying I did not want to do that. Mm-hmm. Make of that whatever you want. And I wanted to actually buy the comics. And really the only one that really stood out to me was the Spider-Man miniseries. Because I was really starting, or, or trying anyway, to build up my Spider-Man collection. And so I was following um, Amazing Spider-Man. Basically, whatever Spider-Man stuff was coming out at the time, I was trying to get in on. And so, holy shit, fear itself, Spider-Man. And it's three issues. Okay, I, I can I can afford that. And so I sat here reading this, and this is a one-issue story. And I mean this in the 1970s sense of the term. A one-issue story spread over three issues where basically fuck all happens. And by the time it's all over, really nothing in terms of Spider-Man's world or his character or anything has really changed or for that matter been really all that affected. I mean it was just sort of in and out. And that kind of put a sour taste in my mouth as far as all of the other tie-ins are concerned. And I just thought, you know, this was a little bit too much of a swing and a miss for me to want to think, well, I'm sure the other ones are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. It just it was it's not like it was just that horrible. It was just it was that bland. It was that forgettable. And so I just kind of gracefully bowed out on that. I was thinking, I'm just, I, I, I'm committed to pay for all of these other ones over here, and that's fine. Probably not going to bother reading them though. And to this day, I haven't. So, huh. yeah, I I only read the the main series and then the three, the seven point one, seven point two, seven point three follow up issues. Uh, but it seems to me like if you have an event like this, especially where a good portion of the action takes place in Manhattan, which is superhero headquarters. Mm-hmm. You, you have to be at least interesting with the tie-in stuff. So hearing you say that, that that sounds like they didn't quite know what to do. Like the editorial didn't quite coordinate properly with everybody. Hey, this is what you're supposed to be dealing with rather than just essentially a throwaway miniseries, which is kind of disappointing to hear. Well, you know what they say. I mean, one man's pleasure is another man's poison, but the, it felt to me like I, like they were basically just trying to uh, chase after, uh, look, I'm not saying that civil war was the first Marvel storyline that ever did this, but civil war is the first Marvel storyline that ever did this, that I ever read. And it's in basically you've got the main series that's spilled over into a shit ton of ongoing monthly titles, but that wasn't enough even just even by itself. They wanted to have these sort of tie-in mini series that uh, tackled stuff that it was just specifically too big or maybe just too tangential to the main series, but it nevertheless has implications on other characters, and so it was thought by somebody, that we needed to have a Civil War X-Men miniseries. We needed to have a sort of man-on-the-street Civil War uh, front-line series. And so we had a miniseries. And so we – or sorry, li- it's Marvel, so limited series. Huh. Um, and so, you know, you had that. And 
I guess, and you had some other one shots and some other things, and it just it felt to me like it was being, I think, pretty honest with the material. And yeah, it, it what it allowed for was that this story, it was as big and epic and huge and important as you want it to be. But if all you want to do is follow that main storyline, you can do it. And I, I think Civil War, it was sort of a masterpiece in terms of how that type of story can be told in a way that satisfies just about everybody's needs. And it doesn't really leave anybody out in the cold. I mean, you don't need to have – for, and I mean specifically for Civil War, you don't need a Spider-Man miniseries for that because he's so deep and uh, deeply involved in that to begin with Right. that there's just it, – it's redundant. But for things like X-Men and, and even Wolverine in some way, because he, he had his own story that I think was just as interesting as anything that was going on in the main series – just could not fit in the main series. And it felt like that was, to bring it all back, that was basically what they were attempting to do with Fear itself. But it just, it didn't have the same type of masterful ex- execution to it. And maybe it was just a matter that, you know what, they just didn't plan this thing as as well as they did Civil War. I don't know. But it just, it felt like they wanted this to be the next Civil War. And it ended up being just kind of bleh. You know, yeah, it's it's almost like it could have been a Thor story, like a just this is happening in the pages of the Thor monthly comic. And, yeah, we're going to tie in a few other things to it. And then they said, well, no, we want this to be the big epic event. And it wasn't quite there. It wasn't quite to that level where it could tie in with everything, with the extra minis and, and all that. It, it, I can't remember what what one it was uh, over at DC that they did that with. It was it was something where it was yeah we we had this planned. It's going in this this character's monthly titles. And this no, we need that to be this big overarching event, and it just it didn't pan out. I can't remember what it was. It again, it's my mindset is still thirty years ago. So it sounds almost like <laughs> Blackest Night, actually. That's actually what it was. Yes, it was Blackest Night was supposed to just be a Green Lantern story from what uh, Jeff Johns' original plan for it was, and then they DC took it and said, "Oh no, 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 we need to." put it into superman and and wonder woman and everything and it just it didn't quite work if you read the main series the main storyline as just a green lantern story it was good and then everything that branched off into oh yeah we have to have this wonder woman mini series and we have to have this mini series that mini series and it just it didn't really it it didn't work very well well and you know what i mean i'm of two minds on that and that you know like from a technical standpoint i completely agree with you i understand exactly where you're coming from i'll even say that you're right but blackest night is one of those stories that i kind of uh, like civil war but for different reasons i just cannot be objective about it Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is because blackest night is a superhero take on a zombie apocalypse and i don't know why but there's just something about that like the basic concept of all of that 
I don't care what is waiting on the other side of a white lantern. That's fucking retarded. Bring it on. I <laughs> loves me some blackest night, you know, and it's a it's an astro that's going to be the white lantern. That's fucking retarded. Bring it on. I loves me some blackest, you know, and so, dude, I completely understand with you. Uh, or rather, I completely agree with you. I totally understand where you're where you're coming from and all yeah. of that. I just have to admit that this is one of those times when I'm full of shit. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as you realize that you're fine. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's the first like being an addict. The the first step is to admit you have a problem. <laughs> when I I do have a problem. So, all right. Well, fair enough. Now, do you have anything else? Do you have got any, any parting shots on uh, fear itself? Anything else that uh, we overlooked? Uh. Not really. I think we we hit all the high points. Uh, it it would just end up devolving into more of my specifics. Oh well, they're they're not doing Odin right because or anything like that. And that's just going back down the same well trodden path that we've done so far. Right. Fair enough. Well, the only other thing that I had was um again, this was the first Marvel limited series and big event crossover that I followed from beginning to end as it came out each month or other month as the case might've been. Mm. And so there's a certain, like I say, newness to all of this. And I was certainly a rookie and everything, but even having said that there was a moment in the first issue that I read this and I thought, okay, now this is a fucking cliche, and I've not read that many Marvel comics, but this <laughs> has got to go. <laughs> that ominous moment when the Watcher shows up and oh, everybody boy. starts freaking out because, oh, that means shit is about to go down here. Yeah, and it it's interesting because in that, the Watcher doesn't say a damn thing. He, he just appears next to Odin, and Odin goes completely that shit crazy just ranting at him and the watcher just staring at him and they just walks off. <laughs> it's a Which, funny moment too. Yeah. It, it, it's an amusing thing because this is the first time the watcher doesn't come down. As, it, I am the watcher is my oath is to never to interfere except for these 5,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so it was just, it was a cool little moment and, but like more that uh, more Odin's contribution to it than the Watcher appearing again. Mm. So even though I hadn't really seen a whole lot of that up to then, but um, either way. So I, dude, just want to thank you again very much for for coming in, joining this, and elevating this thing to honestly a level that I was not expecting. So thank you very much. Now, before we call it a night, um, would you do me a favor and just tell all the listeners? Basically, where it is that you can be found, because they really do need to be uh, listening to your shows. So um, you've got the you've got the mic once again. Well, thank you very much. And the the easiest way to find me is the same way you find Trennis' show, and that would be at twotruefreaks.com. I host uh, the Hammer Podcast, which is my solo show, and it hasn't been very solo recently. I've had a lot of guests on, and under that, I do my. Uh, my sub show called legends of the superheroes, where I talk about the live action versions of your favorite comic book characters. And usually the cheesier, the better. <laughs> then I co-host anime freaks with my good friend, Dr. Bill Robinson. And currently we are on the back half of the first season of star blazers, which is uh, one of my favorites as a, 
as a child. Mm-hmm. And I also co-host the Quantum Cast with my good friend Jeff Fishman, and that's where we're talking about Marvel's D-list superhero Quasar and why you should be reading him because he is the glue, or as Jeff puts it, the Kevin Bacon of the Marvel Universe. And so you can find all my rantings and ravings at twotruefreaks.com on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you care to use. You know, that is so messed up that you phrased it that way. If you had not said those words that Quasar is one of your favorite characters, if you had not said those exact words, I Uh probably would have just let the whole thing slide. Uh But it reminded me... And this is not to challenge you, you understand. But it, uh-huh. it reminded me of um, this Wizard Magazine article that I read. Uh, it was an interview, puff piece, really, for uh, – it was with uh, Greg Capullo, right? Basically, it was right about the time that he was coming on to Spawn. Mm-hmm. And he was taking a look back at his work on Quasar. And he basically said, yeah, you know, I sort of gave that book a, a brief little – a reprieve, but it was always going to get canceled because, and I quote, this was nobody's favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> Little did he know. <laughs> well, anyway, so uh, maybe you, you've you got a, a bone to pick with Greg Capullo now. I don't know, but uh, either way, thanks again for uh, joining me. And dude, honestly, thank you because uh, what I wanted was for this episode to end my Extinction Level event miniseries on a really high note. And you've most certainly done that, so thank you very much. I couldn't have done it without you. Now, as to uh, the rest of you, uh, now that we've got this mini-series over with, it's time to start looking towards the future. And when I'm going to be talking about other comics in the form of other other mini-series. And so, what I have planned for next week is another episode of the Big Book Report going to be rejoined by Chris Honeywell talking about whatever... Honestly, I have no fucking idea which big book it's going to be. I just know that we're going to be talking about one of them. And uh, then after that, continuing my Smallville coverage of uh, Season 3. So that's going to be my agenda for the next couple of weeks. But for right now, thanks again, Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix. And to the rest of you, good night. See you next week. We are out. Excellent.